My name is Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. This is the podcast that you're listening to, The Important Cinema Club, where we're going to be talking about David Mamet, a guy we're going to talk about. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you, Justin. <laughs> yes, that's right. That is the dulcet tone. No, no. Listen. Listen to me. Li- listen. Listen to me. Fuck you. <laughs> of David Mamet, his particular style, which me and Will just covered ourselves in like a toxic goo throughout this week watching his movies. David Mamet has a multifaceted career. First and foremost, of course, he's one of the most famous and acclaimed American playwrights living today. Author of the Pulitzer Prize winning Glengarry Glen Ross, as well as Oleana, Speed the Plow, American Buffalo, among others. He defined American theater in a way. Like, he is one of the greats. He has also, at this point in time, completely lost his marbles, which (laughs) makes you reevaluate all the work that he's done before. I'm sure we'll get to that because, uh, you know, I saw saw a clip of him on Fox News pretty recently where he was going off about the groomer panic, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, business. And you think, how can this man be the same man who wrote? Glenn Gary Glenn Ross how can you be in in my personal opinion so smart in one area and so so silly in another area is it that he hit his head like his character in Homicide does or is it just you know it was always there but we read it the way we want to read it well I think spoiler we're gonna find out it was the latter but Mm. that said I do like David Mamet I'm a fan I mean, how can you not find his work compelling unless you just have an instant reaction against his particular brand of writing? Well, I will say that this week was interesting. So David Mamet, in addition to his playwriting, obviously a very successful screenwriter. He wrote such films as Wag the Dog, The Verdict. Hannibal. The Untouchables, yeah. (laughs) The ones we're talking about are the films that he wrote and directed, which are a very distinct slice of his broader oeuvre and which I think really distill him down to his essence. I watched four movies for this, you watched more, and you see the same themes repeated a lot. Uh, they're, they're all kind of, they all kind of feel like variations on a theme. And David Mamet, if anything, he is a control freak. When you hear the actors talk about being in the plays that he wrote, that they have to stick to the word if not just the word, the uh, rhythms of the specific dialogues that he has in his mind. As a director, he's an interesting case because his direction is very much in the service of his scripts. He's not a bad visual filmmaker. I mean, you know, he's not Kevin Smith. You know, he finds a cinematic language to express his ideas. I think that people tend to poo-poo his visual language more than I think it deserves. Like, I was reading some reviews of people saying that Homicide is very flat-looking, and I can say that maybe its color palette isn't very saturated, but visually he's finding very interesting ways to tackle this material. Yeah, I mean, there's something underrated about his visual style where he knows about blocking. He knows how to compose a shot. He knows how to move actors through the frame in an interesting way. But again, it's always at the service of his words and the acting style that he chooses to employ i think adds to that sense he has a this regular stable of actors that he's always using notably joe montagna william h macy ricky jay his own current wife rebecca pigeon who really only acts in david mamet projects and what they share is that they're all good actors who have a very forceful distinctive screen presence but they're also able to dial themselves back to the essentials. They don't bring a lot of extreme 
miscellaneous business to the words. With someone like Joe Montana, I think the quality of his voice does a lot of the work. And I think that the actors that he continually goes to as well, though, they have a very specific way of saying his dialogue. It, it almost draws attention to the words that they're saying in a way that you don't really hear in someone like Gene Hackman or Danny DeVito when they deliver his dialogue because they have such naturalistic screen presences. Everyone always talks about Mammoth's dialogue. It's very pleasurable and stimulating to listen to. It's dense without being beautiful. But it's also artificial. Mm -hmm. That sometimes when you watch his movies, you're like, wait a minute, is this some kind of absurdist universe that I'm watching? Why does this not sound the way it's supposed to sound in the context of, you know, normal movies. People always say that Mamet has an ear for the way that real people talk. <laughs> they do? <laughs> and yeah, they, they do say that. And that's because, like, he uses a lot of foul language. Mm -hmm. He uses a lot of, I mean, casually racist language. There's nothing flowery about his prose. It's short. It's direct. That said, the dialogue does, as you say, feel very stylized. It's kind of hard to articulate. It's very rat-a-tat. It's very clipped and within the confines of itself. Like, I can see the words on the page and the way they're broken up. I actually read Oleana, the play, and it's right there on the page, the way that it's supposed to be delivered. And if he's doing it to be realistic, it doesn't necessarily play that way on stage i thought a lot about robert brisson watching these absolutely movies. yeah because robert brisson he often hired non he always hired non-actors who he wanted to get the least performance possible from them and just let them be and i'm sure that brisson thought that there was something naturalistic about that but i mean it's just as in its own way i mean if you put a camera in front of anything it ceases to be naturalistic and i mean you could look at vivian lee and as scarlett o'hara and that's not naturalistic then you you can look at the guy from pickpocket i mean that's it's not, not naturalistic either <laughs> yeah yeah but it's everything becomes intensely stylized marlon brando isn't naturalistic i mean there's something there's something hyper real about him on screen was brasson someone who like he just wished he could have gotten that bow finger movie of <laughs> making a film without people knowing they were in a film <laughs> yeah maybe probably not because he liked that style of emptying someone mm -hmm. that was a stylization that he likes and David Mamet likes the way his particular dialogue sounds. Oh boy, does he like it. Also, even though the dialogue is very blunt and simple, it's often at the same time extraordinarily complex because of everything that it hides and obfuscates. Mm -hmm. People are not always being very forthright in these Mamet films and or screenplays. Or like, you know, Glengarry Glenn Ross, the most famous one. I mean, everyone's conning everyone. I mean, everyone's conning everyone in all his movies, but that one is about like salesmen who are not just selling to the rubes but you've got the jack lemon character in that who's like trying to con the kevin spacey character like nothing anybody ever says is forthright and honest i mean every single mammoth script is a con in some way and his dialogue in of itself is that the idea of this directness you hear sounds like i'm putting myself right out i'm saying what i mean without any superfluous stuff but in reality the person is not that directness is an illusion I like trying to figure out what it is about the Mammoth acting style because Joe Montagna registers as an actor. He doesn't register as a Robert Brisson character. He registers as somebody who has, has a certain actorly intelligence that he's bringing to the roles. And yet it's not the same as a performance in another movie. It's so... It's very dry. It's very uninflected. He takes these words and just 
kind of goes straight at them. I don't know if that makes sense at all. I feel like people who have studied Mammoth in like, I don't know, a theatrical class in university are like throwing ceases at us right now. Being like, we've covered it. We've covered it. We're just two bozos. <laughs> yeah, just stumbling through these movies with smiles on our faces, a little bit of hay dangling from our lips. <laughs> I had fun doing this Mammoth deep dive. I will say that the way that we watch movies for this show is not the way people should watch movies because I think you should separate your viewings of David mammoth movies with a couple of other movies like they start there starts to be a bit of a sameness you didn't want to have a mammoth marathon where you just 24 hours of mammoth coming soon to tnt i watched four and then i started watching the spanish prisoner i was after 20 minutes i was like i actually can't be in this world anymore oh my god (laughs) not another fucking con (laughs) so house of games was his first directorial effort this was a joe montagna vehicle starring his (laughs) this was a joe montagna vehicle The studio came to him and said, listen, we want Joe to be a star. (laughs) Give him a movie. And also co-stars Lindsay Krauss. And she, at the time, I mean, it doesn't really matter. She was David Mamet's wife. Um, Interesting bit of gossip. I I will say, in my opinion, she's not very good in this movie. Yeah, she's okay. I mean, she feels artificial within the confines of the film, almost like a hollow university professor that she plays. Everything kind of depends on, I mean, with Mamet's directing and writing style, much depends on the actor being able to naturally radiate a certain charisma. I don't think she quite does it. I feel bad saying that. She's up against a lot. <laughs> Joe Mantegna? <laughs> well, yeah, she's up against a lot doing a David Mamet movie. But anyway, you could make the case that this is his best film. It certainly feels like the one where he said everything he had to say in one fell swoop. So it's a con movie, but it's also about con men. And it's about the Lindsay Krauss character plays a psychologist who wrote a book about addiction and obsession. And when she tries to help one of her patients get out of a large gambling debt, she meets Joe Montaigne, gets involved in a con, uh, helping him cheat at a card game. And of course, you know, he's so charismatic it just pops right off at screen off the screen you know they fall into bed with each other and uh-oh she gets involved in a con that goes wrong or does it yeah i mean once you've watched a couple of mammoth movies in a row you start to figure out okay well <laughs> there's definitely a end of second act or beginning of third act extra con reveal that's gonna well happen. spoiler alert i think this one ends the way i wish all con movies ended uh, if you haven't seen house of games don't listen to the next two sentences where she just catches joe montagna and just blows them away <laughs> and then yeah goes uh, goes off on an island somewhere and somebody says to her at one point if you commit an unforgivable sin you've got to forgive yourself and she does it's like crimes and misdemeanors i was gonna say it's like crimes and misdemeanors now is mamma trying to tell us something in this movie <laughs> well let's talk a little bit about his politics because since the george w bush years mamma has been a been very vocal about his political conversion right now he's on the right of a lot of political and social issues basically any opinion you can have about anything pick like the worst extreme of it and david <laughs> mamma will probably back it up now i'm grateful to have spent some time with him this week because I understand him better now. And I know that we both read an essay that he wrote in 2008 for the Village Voice called Why I Am No Longer a Brain Dead Liberal. Mm -hmm. If folks will indulge me, I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from it because I do think they help illuminate his his oeuvre. As a child of the 60s, I accepted as an article of faith that government is corrupt, that business is exploitative, and that people are generally good at heart. Now, as the article goes on, he realizes that the first two things are true, but the third one, people being generally good at heart, 
that's not true. He goes on to say, I wondered how could I have spent decades thinking that I thought everything was always wrong at the same time that I thought people were basically good at heart? Which was it? I began to question what I actually thought and found that I do not think that people are basically good at heart. Indeed, that view of human nature has both prompted and informed my writing for the last 40 years. I think that people, in circumstances of stress, can behave like swine, and that this, indeed, is not only a fit subject, but the only subject of drama. Wait a minute. I agree with him. Does that mean I agree with everything that David Mamet says? Well, let's let's put it this way. Here's what, here's what I think in response to that. Mm -hmm. Are people inherently good? Not no. really. No. no, but are they inherently bad? No. Why wouldn't you want the best for people? Pe period. People, people are not inherently anything, except people are inherently self-interested. Yes. And why shouldn't they be? So basically, the thesis that Mammoth is getting to is that because they are not inherently good, why should I be good then? <laughs> like, that's the excuse he's making for himself. Or that if pushed into circumstances, if mm. pushed into unwinnable circumstances, people will do things that are wrong. Yes. And oftentimes, I mean, uh, the uh, socialist or the, the left-wing point of view might say, well, maybe they're motivated by their material conditions. And what if we created a society that tends to people's material conditions and made everyone more comfortable, made a more livable, better world? But what if I just liked my stuff and I didn't want <laughs> other people to have stuff? And by taking this political position, I just don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, I mean, Mr. Mamet would say that uh, one thing we've seen is the government is bad. Government's always bad. Look at Vietnam. Hey, look at Iraq. He's even conceding Iraq. Iraq. Everything the government does is bad, so why should we trust them on anything? Yeah, okay. I mean, he also made the argument... I don't like arguing this. No, <laughs> he also made the argument of, you know, I hated George W. Bush, but... John F. Kennedy was bad, too. So if they're both bad, then nothing matters. And it's like, they can still be both bad, man. He's often on the edge of something that I'll agree with, <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I agree with you. Just the conclusion you utilize these answers to get to, instead of being like, if everything is bad, let's try to work to a different you know, form to make things good. He goes, eh, I just want to try anymore. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> like, the wor it the world's bad. Yeah. Everything's always going to be bad. And so you can see in a lot of Mammoth's work, uh, frankly, I think that it's been pretty consistent from the beginning to now. He does not have a very good view of people. He thinks that people, he thinks that everyone's in on a con. How many Mammoth plays or screenplays have there been where somebody who seems to represent some sort of marginalized or victimized group actually reveals themselves to be part of a huge con all along? Well, that's a twofold thing, which is that way you don't have to actually worry about those marginalized people mm -hmm. because... They're probably just trying to get one over on because you. Because we're all we're all bad. Yeah. No matter and yeah, maybe they are marginalized, but you know what? Anybody who gets any little bit of power is corrupted, so And number two, I'm smarter than you because I can see through that con. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's both of those things that kind of define the mammoth of yeah. We both watch Homicide, yeah. which is almost like Insane. A, well, like a screamed warning to future David Mammoth <laughs> of being like, This is what's gonna happen to you. <laughs> yeah, and yet also, at the same time, very consistent yes, with, who with he his is worldview. So, Homicide from 1991, his third directorial effort, stars Joe Montagna as Bobby Gold. He's a homicide detective who is Jewish, 
but does not strongly identify as Jewish. He's on the trail of a drug lord played by Ving Rhames, but he is reassigned to take on a case involving the murder of a Jewish shopkeeper, because that shopkeeper's son is a powerful member of the city's Jewish community. So over time, he finds out that this family is part of this very powerful, top-secret Zionist group that, among other things, roots out anti-Semites and Nazi sympathizers in the city. As somebody who feels very alienated from his own Judaism, feels very excluded from the community, Montagna, who has put up, like, the way he talks, he's almost, he's he's self-hating. He's Mm. almost an anti-Semite. He feels himself being tempted by being included in this group. Like, he wants to belong to something. Something that feels at home. Like, they keep pressing on him, like... What is your home? What is your group? Like, why do you fight this? And all he wants is this, because I guess he doesn't feel like the cops, who are also very bad in this movie, Uh are giving him that anymore. So he falls into this. He does some things that maybe he shouldn't do. And they turn on him instantly. I mean, guess what? Everyone's everyone's got a con. Mm -hmm. Everyone's in on the con. You know... What, an interesting part of this is that there is a criminal played by Ving Rhames in the film. He shows up at the end, and he is destroyed by the fact that his mother would turn him in. But his mother only did it because she didn't want to see him hurt. Yeah. And it seems like that doesn't really play into the end of the movie. It's just another example of everyone conning everybody. You can't trust anyone. Okay, if I can now jump ahead much later in his career, I want to talk about 2008's Red Belt, mm-hmm. which... Seems There's like, only one good man left. Yeah, seems like an outlier in his work to me because the main character, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, is absurdly good. He's the greatest man I've ever seen in a movie. You know, like David Mamet would say, a Donald Trump type, if you will. <laughs> So in that one, he plays the owner of a failing jujitsu studio. And like all of Mammoth's self-directed work, this plot is insanely complicated. I'm not even sure how much or how little to describe, but basically... Good Tim Allen. Yeah, Tim Allen's good in it. And Tim Allen is one of the many players in it. He plays a privileged movie star who goes slumming one night and gets in a bar fight. And Chiwetel Ejiofor protects him. But Chiwetel Ejiofor gets caught up in this conspiracy plot because he covered for a cop. Um, Tim Allen gave him a watch that he gave to his cop friend. The watch was stolen. Mm -hmm. And so the cop got fired from his job because it was a stolen watch. And Chiwetel tried to help him out with that. And Emily Mortimer is also involved because she accidentally shot the cop in a panic at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's all very complicated, and it also reaches conclusions that you're like, when that, that wouldn't happen. Okay, so what you need to know is that everyone is evil and corrupt, and there's one good man in the center of it, and all the world wants to do when it sees a good man is to crush him, to pull him into the con. David Mamet probably wants to pull this man into the con because he's saying, how can you be so good? How can you have no hidden agendas? So it all comes to a head at this big, tacky, horrible mixed martial arts tournament run by Ricky Jay, who's... The ultimate con man. Yeah. The real-life magician himself. Have you ever seen the Ricky Jay special that David Mamet directed? I've heard good things about it. Very good. Check it out. Yeah. So anyway, he's running this big, incredibly commercial tournament where they've brought in this great grandmaster from Asia to watch it, but they don't take him that seriously. They're they're fixed on the fight. Mm -hmm. Another con. Another con. But then... Ultimately, uh, Chiwetel stands up for what's right, and so many threads are left dangling at the end of this movie. 
but I mean, there's not even any dialogue after the big final fight. People just see the hero radiating the power of goodness that they give him multiple awards in the final moments of the film. When I saw this movie theatrically, I didn't think it was good. But did you think it was like too basic? Did the uh, trailers promise you like an action spectacular or something? I mean, I I was old enough at that point to know who David Mamet was. Mm. So I knew it was going to be something different. But I think it felt a little bit. I mean, what what catches you off guard about the movie is that it's so complex. There are so many strands and then it sort of ends on this very bizarre note where I thought it was very satisfying the way that it plays out. It's a very naive look at the world. Okay, so I loved it watching it this time. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed all the mammoth stuff. I enjoyed all the characters. I mean, it's just full of tasty little bits of dialogue and uh, fun character actors and fun roles. Tim Allen, you know, certainly not the least among them. I would 100% think if mammoth made that exact same script now, he would cast a white guy in the lead role, which would make the movie feel much different than it does. Do you do you think he would? Do you think he would have that that sort of victimization complex. Yes. Where, yeah. Does David Mamet have a victimization complex? <laughs> Let me look up what he's been up to lately. Oh boy. I mean, gosh, I would, I would uh, hate to think that he'd gone that far to the dark side, but <laughs> I, I mean, mean, he's pretty far to the dark side. <laughs> like when you look at anything he's written, the multiple books about, uh, you know, how everything is bad, but you know, the Republican Party is good. He was like a big Sarah Palin defender too oh, back in the day. Yeah. I mean, okay, this is the thing with that brain dead liberal article there's a certain amount of it that i can i can see okay torqued in a different way i could get behind some of what mm. you're saying here but, but then, it's the destination that he's going to the yeah i mean if he's just gonna become a republican i mean that's <laughs> that's if you're if you're gonna become an angry independent i can see that mm-hmm. but but if you're gonna support these fucking clowns he's, i don't know he's, he's gotten too much power up at the top of the hill as like <laughs> the greatest you know american theatrical writer ever and then he's like all right <laughs> you know i can be angry against everything or i can try to fight against i don't know like how your brain like twists that way okay i know that you watched a movie that i consider to be one of the most evil ever made which Mm -hmm. is phil Spector. yes which is the last directorial feature effort of david mamet and what did you think of it not good okay this movie is incredible i didn't revisit it but we all know phil Spector, the uh, wall of sound music producer of the 60s and 70s who uh, uh spent a little time behind bars before his passing because from covid in 2021 yeah because he he murdered a woman yes Uh, he was found guilty of Uh, murdering a woman well i think this movie points to that in a different direction the phil specter movie opens with this disclaimer that basically says um everything you see is fiction uh, has nothing to do with the actual trial uh uh, maybe some things aren't are a little bit made up etc so david mamet basically does the Phil Spector trial and removes anything that would like make Phil Spector look guilty at all and just not even ignores it just changes it yeah so they make it so that there's basically no evidence Mm -hmm. when in fact there was evidence there There was blood on the guy Phil Spector he hadn't been drunk for 10 years he'd only been drinking the first uh, time that night and it's like no he had been drinking for the last two months before that oh the blood splatter on his clothes which they make a big deal about they're like no they proved in court that it would be a mist if he fired it from where he fired it the thing that I find so reprehensible about that movie is there's a whole bit where you see the audition video of the woman that he murdered where it's her doing like sketch comedy and yeah like, she's in blackface in it and it's like it's kind of lame mm. it's kind of not great but we you see them laughing at it 
and you see everyone making fun of her and basically mammoth is saying look at this look at this ridiculous woman make fun of her laugh at her and i'm sorry but bad enough that she was fucking murdered but now you're dredging up this embarrassing video and making us say well she deserved it basically and helen mirren the good lawyer who gets turned on to the charming phil specter side played by al pacino watches the video and goes we can't show this because we'd be attacking her and i refuse to attack her which the lawyer in real life did do (laughs) she attacked that victim oh my god and now mammoth's doing it all over again he's basically saying (laughs) okay phil specter is not guilty but if he was i mean look at this broad i mean don't you think she kind of deserved it that's that's what he's saying but really what his thesis in this is is that uh phil specter is was just too famous he was just too good they keep going back to that like they just want to knock him down because he was too good at making music he defined music he was like willy wonka or something or he's like he's what the people who think michael jackson is innocent think michael jackson is you know oh man uh david mamet go make a michael jackson is innocent movie <laughs> like that is the next uh, you know mountain that he has to climb so al pacino is playing phil specter in a career worst performance i mean he doesn't seem like he knows where he is and he's going off on these monologues which basically come down to they hate me because i'm different Mm-hmm. And then the implication is we've all seen the picture of Phil Spector with that kooky hair at the trial, the big flowing multiple wigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, they're saying, well, that sealed his fate because the jury saw him. And not only were they intimidated by his fame, but he was just too weird. There was so much evidence of him yeah. being a gun carrying like a wild man. And then, and then also you saw the audition video like she deserved she, she, it. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. I terrible mean, movie. Heinous. Evil. Looks like shit too. Oh yeah. Awful looking. Yeah. <laughs> like 2011 early digital technology. Man, it, you know, I tried to defend his visual style earlier but boy, this is just like, it looks like the Canyons. I'm shocked you don't watch this Phil Spector movie once a year. <laughs> Having got myself really worked up about that, uh, let's talk about Spartan. What a great movie this is. I love is. Spartan. <laughs> so good. This one came out in I think 2004. Bit of a transition film for everyone involved i think it was the last movie from val kilmer's run as a star i think he had kiss kiss bang bang a little bit after this didn't he well that was kind of positioned as a comeback Mm -hmm. wasn't it yeah you're right and this is david mamet working supposedly in a very low budget range yeah even though this did get a theatrical release like it did play it's a warner brothers production Mm -hmm. val kilmer plays a secret service guy who has spent his whole life not asking questions maybe he was a bit of a brain dead liberal if he were (laughs) that's right going along (laughs) and one day okay again like all his movies there's a very very elaborate conspiracy which involves like president's daughter's kidnapped or is she and 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 yeah like maybe she's killed maybe she isn't but what it comes down to is that there's a sex trafficking ring all the elites are into it all the elites know about it guys does this sound familiar does this sound like something that would happen in real life kind of does doesn't it which is why like David Mamet, I can go with them sometimes to a certain degree. Yes, I, I believe <laughs> that all this stuff could happen. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah, and like at the end of the movie, spoiler, when Val Kilmer is like, you know, the, the president's daughter has been safely restored to her position and the president is now coming out firmly against child sex trafficking. <laughs> he's like, well, that's Val Kilmer's moment where he's no longer a brain dead liberal. That's you know? right. He has a big bushy beard and he walks off into the distance now to be the david mammoth that we have today yeah this movie great movie though it's super fun it is working within very kind of like straightforward genre confines that it almost makes me wish like david mammoth had been banished to like dtv land where he could do his own stuff under a limited budget but he 
to make these kind of Spartan style action films. Well, yeah, it's the kind of exploitation movie that you love where it's very plot driven. It's very much about the genre and the artist's preoccupations are always lurking around the corners. And he's found a way to synthesize his particular style, his style of dialogue, as well as his storytelling style with this form that's very like off the shelf. And it doesn't need to be very expensive either. Like he Mm -hmm. can work. He doesn't do big action scenes like there's no big, you know, David Mamet blockbuster. I guess like Heist is as close as he got to. But that's another David Mamet film with Mm -hmm. just big, you know, marquee stars that uh, appear in it. But Spartan is exciting. It's very compelling. Like you're with it every step of the way, like the verbal gymnastics, the plot gymnastics are there. It just doesn't have huge action scenes. Mm -hmm. It has a little bit of gunplay. But you don't need huge action scenes because it's so compelling the way he puts this all together. If Sinistate was still around, I could almost bet you money that uh, David Mamet would make a movie for them. Actually, now that I think about it, the Daily Wire David Mamet movie. Oh my God. Can that be far away? Like, I mean, please, if we're going to have Daily Wire making movies, can they get him? David Mamet. Can we get a good filmmaker to do them? As opposed to the director of um, The Return of Xander Cage. Yeah, I mean, come on, like get him, get S. Craig Zoller, get the good conservative filmmakers. Come on. Well, yeah, that make good movies. Yeah. (laughs) You just had the good conservative filmmakers. Uh, Yeah, the the filmmakers who made made good movies. Compelling movies, yes. Yes. And let's get Tim Allen in a a S. Craig Zoller movie, because I think it'd be great. Oh, I would love a Tim Allen S. Craig Zoller movie. Like, where the problem is Tim Allen is too successful with his TV shows, so he doesn't need that. Oh, come on, man. I mean, he was he's a great David Mamet actor because you see him in Red Belt and he's got a great voice. Mm. He's got a great presence. He knows how to dial it back. And Tim Allen radiates charisma when he wants to. So you know? David Mamet, Tim Allen, Star and Vehicle. Come on, let's let's get it out there. Let's will it to life. And Val Kilmer's a good David Mamet actor, too, because he can do all the same. Mm, I mean, I don't think Val Kilmer will be doing much acting these days. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Unfortunately. So David Mamet, compelling, very samey. Uh, yeah, samey, I would say enjoy David Mamet movies. Separate your viewings out a little bit, but everyone I've seen... Uh, well, with, with the exception of some of them I liked. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so not everyone I've seen I've liked. But <laughs> but I mean, look, I also love a lot of the screenplay work. The Edge is mm. incredibly fun. Now, uh, to end this, you saw American Buffalo on stage mm-hmm. because you went to New York. And how was it versus the movie version that you've been kind of, you know, watching all week? Okay, so I never saw the American Buffalo movie. Which is supposed to be not good. But I do think Mamet, like... Obviously, he's better in a theater. Mm, Because that immediacy is right there. Yeah, and there's something about having the live actors there delivering this dialogue live, doing the rat-a-tat thing live. There's an energy in in the room, and it feels a little bit more like watching like an athlete perform a really complicated maneuver when Mm -hmm. you've got two great actors doing that David Mamet thing together. And also, I think just not having music, not having certain of the cinematographic techniques imposed on it yeah i mean mamet first and foremost is a creature of the theater Mm -hmm. but i do like his movies too and you know he's still bringing in that money because people like will go to see these plays Uh, look if i was there with you i would have walked right in see Lawrence fishburne sam rockwell acting up on stage fantastic i mean actors doing the acting you love to see it and uh david mamet if he wanted to have dinner with me i'd (laughs) I'd probably do that too. <laughs> Would you? 
<laughs> He's treating though, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're not paying for it. I don't it. have a Pulitzer. Come on. <laughs> so, as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, Hey, Justin and Will. On a recent podcast, Will mentioned that he felt Haneke had missed the mark with Funny Games, setting its popularity at teenage sleepover parties as one indication of failure. Well, <laughs> well not related to... Can, can, I, can I just give a little context for that question? So <laughs> That makes it sound, you're like, all right, is this a hit or a miss? Let's play it at a sleepover uh, party to see if it is. Michael Haneke's Funny Games is famously a very disturbing movie about home invasion where Haneke wanted to use it as a Trojan horse to do a critique of horror films and sadistic violent films by making a movie that was basically so horrific and violent that it would shock people out of their complacency and make them understand why it was wrong to watch such movies. And I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but that's kind of one of his agendas. And the movie has lived on as a movie that people who like horror movies like. So, I mean, he failed. So, yeah. <laughs> But a good horror movie. Yeah. So the letter continues, well, not related directly to that point. It got me to thinking how audience reactions have impacted my assessment of movies. For example, I remember being turned off a fight club as a teen after one was actually started at my school. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> Hope everyone's okay. <laughs> to what extent does audience reaction reception impact your taste in movies? Has your opinion on a film changed after being claimed or co-opted? Thanks for the great content. I'll throw in my episode idea, lesser known class that were filmed in Canada. <laughs> Example, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, uh, yeah. McCabe and Mrs. Miller was filmed in Vancouver. I mean, you can look at my uh, letterbox list of Hong Kong films filmed in Canada that I have up right now. Has an audi- has audience reception view- impacted how I view a movie? I mean, it definitely has because art doesn't exist in a vacuum. I mean, the artist puts the object out and the audience receives it and that can very much impact how you understand it. I mean, is Chapel Monsieur Verdu more interesting because audiences in 1947 hated it. I mean, yeah, it is. What is Freddy Got Fingered more interesting because audiences in 2001 hated it? I, I would say so. Has there ever been a movie, though, that you disliked following the dogma of the populace and you've later realized on your own that you actually do enjoy it? Um, I would say that um, the first example that comes to mind, I don't know if it's a perfect example, but The Dark Knight became <laughs> such a huge movie that I mean when I saw it when I was 19 obviously I loved it and then I liked it too when I saw it yeah yeah and then I think it became such a such a huge movie that everyone would go like well it's not as good as a dark night well it's um things become overexposed and after a while too you can I mean fight clubs the example of like people often use of people misinterpreting a movie or it being reclaimed by the wrong sorts of people. I mean, I, I try not to fall into that trap too much. Yeah, you're like a Mary, um, what was the UK censor? Mary <laughs> White, Whitehouse? White House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're like, shut it down! None of these movies! They're too influential to the use of the nation! Yeah, but there is such a thing as being overexposed mm. to something. Yeah, I, I mean, Fight Club had that perfect mixture, though, of like, it's so stylish and in your face that whatever message the movie is trying to convey you can just ignore it and go like, well, I like what this is doing, so I must believe the message that it's putting forth, even though I don't understand it. But then also, I mean, a movie like Wall Street or The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. which have a, supposedly been claimed by Gordon Gecko types as being like aspirational movies, I don't really care. Like, I think I think those movies actually, if, if you watch them with two brain cells, they speak for themselves. But like, Goodfellas could also be an aspir- 
inspirational movie, right? Because it's so fun when you watch yeah, it, and but, it's just like a roller coaster. But also, like, fine, who cares? It doesn't I mean, matter. <laughs> I, like, like I actually, as Goodfellas, really done. I, I the mob would exist with <laughs> or without Goodfellas. Yeah, I hate to break it to you, the mob existed before that movie came out. Yeah, it existed after it came out. I think there are greater problems in society than whether or not a bad person likes a movie for the wrong reasons. And have I changed my mind on a movie? No, never. I'm always right. So that's <laughs> never happened. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. I think I think uh, a Bella movie. Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla is, true. is one that's gone up. In a your... little uh, film called Steven Soderbergh's Haywire. Oh, <laughs> Thank that's you very true. much. Yeah. You want to hear something weird that I discovered that all the new Soderbergh films are only on manufactured on demand DVD. That's the only way to get them on physical media now. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, honestly. I think probably I'm a lot of movies. that it exists only on DVD, uh, that it exists on DVD at all. And one day those movies will disappear. Someone will forget a hard drive and you will not be able to just stumble out upon them in the wild and go like, what is this? Which I do all the time when I'm in used bookstores. And when Netflix goes out of business. Which they will. There will be a whole catalog of orphan movies like The Gray Man that will be <laughs> sort of like, they'll become the new Heartbreak Kid or the new Happiness where they just get tied up in litigation for the next 500 years. People will be desperately digging for the screeners they would send out on DVD in those like cardboard cases. Yeah. Or they'll just download them, I don't know. Or perhaps they'll go, Man, this movie's not good. Let's not watch this. Yeah. <laughs> and never speak and, of it ever the gray, again. The gray man will have zero seeds on the pirate bay. <laughs> You'd be like, how can there be zero seeds on this movie that only came out five years ago? <laughs> Nobody likes it. Nobody <laughs> wants to watch it anymore. <laughs> So thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter goes, Hey, Justin and Will, thanks as always for the best film podcast out there. Your omnivorous and open-minded approach to cinema is a continual inspiration. You even convinced me to order porn from Vinegar Syndrome. Ooh. So you, you got one, Will. What, you got one to do it. What did they order, did they say? No matter how emphatically I insist that I bought Summer Camp Girls out of Gary Graver O'Tourism, <laughs> however, my girlfriend insists I'm just a perv. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Graver isn't the first porn auteur I would recommend, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, I'm glad I'm glad you're getting into Gary Which Graver O'Tourism. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome Blu-rays had commentaries, but yeah, I mean, who could they get to talk about that? Yeah, yeah who knows? <laughs> like both of you, and seemingly everyone between the ages of 15 and 40, I've seen Shrek an incalculable number of times. I was just seven or eight when it came out so it was both an at-home and in-school favorite oh my god in third grade we even had an assignment inspired by shrek all of us were asked to write what our student teacher called fractured fairy tales uh i think a little um a man named jay ward came up with that <laughs> yep the term made me wonder still does where exactly shrek fits in this proud literary tradition if i remember correctly nearly half of us choose to spoof harry potter not quite a fairy tale but these were the days of both shrek fever and potter mania after your shrek marathon you are both dejected at the lack of American Idol parody in any of the movies. I have good news and bad news. There is a Swamp Idol parody, but it's not canon. It was a special feature on the Shrek DVD. That's, I think I said that in the episode, or maybe when we were we talking We might have afterwards. said it off, Mike. Yeah. I don't know. But yes, that is true. So Shrek 2, get it on DVD. Check out Larry King singing. I'm running long, but want to throw in some sincere ass-kissing, if I may. Oh. Justin, thank you from the bottom of my heart for the screenings and marathons. I have exactly zero in-real-life friends who like movies, let alone off-the-beaten-pass movies, it's such a treat to make discoveries and revisit my favorites with like-minded folks. And Will, I think your Twitter account is one of the very best. Oh, I should have read this email before should, I read it out loud. You shouldn't have said that. Yeah. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Thanks again, Bennett. Well, thanks see, very much, See, Bennett. he likes my Twitter. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, a lot of people like your Twitter, Will. Yeah. I'm glad that you can watch movies online with us. And those movie people, they're out there. Just, you know, keep eyes peeled, go to screenings, and you eventually you'll find them. That's how I met my movie-loving friends. If you're not in a big city, go to a big city. <laughs> Just move to a big city. That's where you'll, you'll meet these <laughs> kind do, of do people. Do it tomorrow. <laughs> Get out of there. Get out of there. So our next letter goes, hey, boys. I was thinking about your sellout theme months the other day, and my brother and I were both listeners. Hi, Ian. We're discussing a related theme month. We call it Eating Your Vegetables. Didn't we do an Eating Your Vegetables month? We should. We did We did an international cinema month. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we should do Eating Your Vegetables month. I like that. This month would be for capital G great filmmakers who, nevertheless, don't exactly make cinema I'm always in a hurry to watch. A couple names that come to mind along these lines are Lars von Trier. I actually really like Lars von Trier's movies, but it's a difficult topic to discuss Bruno Dumont who I've never seen one film of his have you actually you know what I have seen one of his movies I saw his Joan of Arc part one yes I saw that heavy metal I saw that yeah I saw that and I need to see more uh Cinemascope is gonna ban you from writing for them anymore because you always see his movies in those top tens they put out yeah Nagisa Oshima I like that I love Oshima yeah in the realm of the senses maybe Renoir yeah Renoir I like him Tartofsky makes vegetable movies but I think he belongs in sellout month <laughs> you know what? You're right. Yeah, there's been a real like it's funny when I first heard about Tarkovsky, like I remember reading an Entertainment Weekly review of Solaris when I in like 2002. The original or yeah, the was original. it the Steven Soderbergh no, remake? No, it was the Tarkovsky one. It was in the DVD section and they almost positioned it as like, huh, well, if you thought 2001 was slow, get a load of this obscure <laughs> Russian movie. <laughs> it was like, in your local town paper. I, like. I mean, I, those weren't the exact words, but that was basically the, the theme of it. Like it was almost positioned as the ultimate in art house obscurantism. And now tons of people People love Solaris. Tons of people too. Yeah. I would say too many like Solaris. <laughs> so our next letter is from Tony Marshall and he goes, Hey guys, love the pod. And since you are covering Mammoth, I'm curious about what you think of James Gray. I find the Jewish identity fascinating in American cinema. And after never hearing of Gray till Ad Astra, I need to know what you think or if you'll ever cover him, especially as he as he is such an earnest throwback filmmaker in the modern age and has recently become Twitter's favorite champion of the mid-budget movie. Thanks, Tony. Recently? God, I've been hearing about James Gray for like the last mm, decade, it he, feels like. Yeah, I think so. James Gray is kind of like... He, he, the go-to guy of like, they don't make movies like this anymore. Yeah, and he's always financially unsuccessful too. Like he's constantly making movies that should be hits but aren't. I really like that, Astra. I, I mean, I like James Gray a lot. I mm-hmm. think Two Lovers is fantastic. The Immigrant is really good. The Yards. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, I like him. We should do an episode on him. We should. We need to get that uh, Cage Cinema uh, crowd to come in and listen to our work. And I think James Gray would be the good entry point mm-hmm. for them. So thank you very much for everybody's letters. You can send us letters again at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. This week on our Patreon, Will. Uh, me and Will, we're going on a road trip this weekend, so get ready for the next week's and changes content to be all basically road trip related. So for our Patreon this week, we will be talking about our 10 favorite road trip movies. Sounds good. And we will be doing it. We'll be talking about the Tom Green film Road Trip. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen Road Trip. Really? Wait, did we watch it for... No, we didn't do it no. for a Tom Green episode yet. We didn't do a Tom Green <laughs> Why episode. Why don't we do a picture of the one <laughs> Road Trip? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, throwing at the top 10 movies. We're doing a picture of the one Road Trip. But we are... <laughs> 
We are going to record it on the road. We will record it on the road. We'll have a big snake in my hands. Yeah. We will also have uh, a third podcast member that will be added to the podcast because he tested very well. They want more of it. Because yeah, Have you ever seen Road Trip? I, I mean, as a child, I saw it on TV. The yeah. story goes that like Tom Green was like the bookends of the movie. Oh, yeah. And because he became so big, they like shot new scenes and put him throughout. And then he was like on the poster. He <laughs> yeah. was the star of the film all of a sudden. And I mean, it is a film from the award-winning filmmaker Todd Phillips as well. That's so right. We got to do our due diligence. That's what we're doing on the Patreon this week. Check it out patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And next week, again, we're going on a trip. We're going down to the Mahoning Drive-In, the legendary site uh, that shows movies all on 35 millimeter. That is their thing. How can it be? That's my question. I don't know. But they uh, continue to do it. I believe they own the land as well. Because remember, like a year ago, it looked like they were going to lose the land. Mm-hmm. It was going to be leased out from under them. And then they ended up buying it from the person that owned it. So now it's all theirs. And they can continue doing this for as long as they want. Speaking of how they can do it, how are we seeing the lineup of movies, which we will do a whole episode about, uh, that's happening this weekend? I, I mean, mean, do you remember what they are, Will? Uh, there's The Man from Planet X. Oh, Edgar G. Ulmer on 35mm. I don't think I've seen an Edgar G. Ulmer film on 35mm. I don't think I have either. And, and, yeah. and also... An Edward L. Kahn film, It the Terror from Beyond Space. There is Godzilla 1985. Which, I mean, listen, I hope you don't work for a studio, but I believe that movie is technically not legally allowed to be showed in North America, right? Well, the American version. The American version. That's what I mean. The one that has the big Godzilla speech given by our favorite character, Steve Martin. (laughs) Played by Raymond Burr. That's right. And then there's going to be a Three Stooges night. Uh, Of just terrible Three Stooges. (laughs) Half Rocket will travel, the Three Stooges in orbit, and... Apparently, the pilot for their unsold TV show, The Three Stooges Scrapbook. Now, when I saw The Three Stooges Scrapbook, I'm like, oh, yeah, all the great TV stuff. And then Will was like, no, no, no. This is the one they shot in 1963. And I'm like, oh, man. So we will see three Curly Joe films. I love Curly Joe. (laughs) Curly Joe is my god. Um, I never thought I would see a Curly Joe feature film with other people. Will there be laughs? Will it be dead silence? I'll be laughing. I'll be, I'll laughing be honking well. the horn. Uh... <laughs> yeah, just uncontrollably. Like, doo, 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 doo. So that's what it'll be next week's episode. It'll be like uh, an episode about the drive-in, 50s monster movies, because that's mostly what we'll be watching during the weekend. And of course, the late period Three Stooges. So check in for that very special self-indulgent episode. And until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Speaking of the Three Stooges, Justin, I saw that you bought the complete Three Stooges Columbia Pictures short films on DVD. I did, and I mostly did it because I was under the mistaken belief that when they got these DVD releases, that they were packed with special features, commentaries, featurettes. I have a memory of picking up in the store and like looking through it and be like, oh, there's a commentary on this, there's a commentary on that. And my plan was to rip those commentaries so me and Will would have something to listen to on our drive to uh, the Mahoney Drive-In. But nope, just uh, blank, bare-bones DVDs with all the shorts. But that's fine, because now you got all the shorts. That's right. And you should watch them sequentially. Uh, that's my plan. The very beginning to the very end. The last third of that marathon will be pretty hard, I think. But... It, does it include any Curly Joe material on the Complete Three Stooges shorts? I don't think it does. I don't think so. Um, although, Curly Joe did do a couple of Columbia short films on mm. his own as a solo comedian. But not with the Three Stooges. So, like, the last few would be probably, like, compilation things, where well, they have fake shimps. No, no, because there was Joe yeah. Besser. Yeah. Joe Not Besser. So-
Not so hot. Yeah, he was the last dude. So yeah, I know that you watched some of the very early curly ones, which mm. are actually very good. So I watched the first one, which is called Women Haters. And what I did not know is that it was actually part of another Columbia musical series. So like every line of dialogue rhymes in the short. So you get the Three Stooges singing, basically. Mm-hmm. And you also get the Three Stooges kind of doing their shtick. They don't have the names Mo Curly and Larry. They have some other names. Blasphemy to, to, to my ears. But I expected this in the early shorts, like them kind of figuring out how they were going to use them. It does not include the Ted Healy Three Stooges short that they did, where just one mean man beating up on three dumb guys. Yeah, so before the Three Stooges were as we knew them now, they had this guy named Ted Healy, who is like the star of the act. And they were literally his Stooges. Do we have enough material that we could buy the Ted Healy book, the biography, and do an episode on Ted Healy? I think we can, actually, because he was in he was in Mad Love. He was in several movies, mostly with the Stooges. And there's a whole book dedicated to him. Okay, well, we got to do this. Ted Healy. (laughs) We'll be the first Ted Healy podcast (laughs) ever done. Uh, We love to be like, you know, man on the moon doing things for the first time. But so he is not in the Three Stooges short. But what I was really surprised by is that by the second one. Punch Drunks. Punch Drunks. And that's the classic Three Stooges one. The one where Curly hears um, that weasel song, Pop Goes the Weasel, that makes him super strong. So he has to fight in the ring. I remember that one. I've seen it tons of times. I think I watched it for the episode that we did. It's very funny. And then after that, it is Three Little Pigskins, mm-hmm. which is also funny. And then there's Men in Black, which is that the Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, Dr. <laughs> Howard hospital one, which was their only Academy Award nominated. Wow. And then from that from then on, it's just like golden age, vintage stooge. They just hit the ground running. So, uh, you know, us talking about this for the thousands time. I think, though, that I want to drill down and say once again, the three stooges are very funny. Oh, yeah. Like you may not get it. That's fine. I mean, you just don't enjoy slapstick then, I guess. Like, that's what it boils down to, right? I mean, At the end I, of the day. Yeah, I just think. Can you like the Looney Tunes and not like the Three Stooges? Well, yes, actually, because I think the hmm. Looney Tunes, because it's animated, there's hmm. a whole other level of stuff going on. Yeah, but the, the like the physicality of them performing, just the choreography, because there's, you know, an approach you can take the Three Stooges of like it's base, it's easy. And because of that, it's not funny. And I think that a lot of anti-Stooge people, that's the way they approach it. When, it, when you watch one of their vintage shorts, like, that shit is gold. Like, well, they are vaudeville-trained performers who have been doing this for thousands of hours. I think it's funny pre- precisely because it's bass. Yes. I mean, we all understand the pain hurts. What? Man, in that second short, all the sound effects are right there, like the eye pokes, the slaps. Mm. But then also, as performers, they're mm. great. I mean, they're completely committed to the bit. All of, all of their little manner all the little thing, you know, the way that they're completely in line with each other, just just physically, uh, the, the way they take it so seriously at every time. Uh, I like I like when just just in any short where like somebody sneaks up on them or anyone says, oh, boys, and then they all. They all do this thing where they like startle mm-hmm. just in unison together. There's a real internal logic and coherence to every piece of body language that the Stooges do. They need to play in sync to be funny. I mean, listen, if you want to see the unfunny version of the Stooges, I have a little film called Crazy Nights for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a Three Stooges ripoff directed by one of our favorite directors, uh, William Bodine. And if you watch that, you go, oh, this is what people think is bad Three Stooges. <laughs> but then when you watch like the classic stuff, the good stuff, like oh no this is great though also curly howard i mean just legendary the funniest man who ever lived i mean just the the most joyous screen persona 
But they I have to be in sync, though. Like, Larry yeah. has to do his Larry thing for the whole unit to work. As we said many a times, if it was just Moe and Curly, no matter how funny they are, it would just be a mean guy beating on a dumb guy. Yeah. And it wouldn't be that funny. So you need a third guy. And I <laughs> I think I think Larry is, he's the thinking man stooge. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. Shemp is the thinking man stooge. Uh, uh, Curly Joe is the... <laughs> No, no, but, but but Larry, Larry, you learn to love because he he is nothing but so exquisitely nothing. Like the way his face rests, but he is needs so to be funny. flustered in a specific way as well to yeah. be like. Oh. I mean, the first hey, short, cut it out, guys. Yeah, the first short stars Larry, and that feels wrong. Yeah, like the, no short, no three stooges short should star Larry. It should star none of them. It should be all three of them together. Hey, break it up, guys. <laughs> I mean, just laughing, thinking about it, wanting. <laughs> I don't want to go watch a three suits short right now. It's hard to do a Larry impression. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. yeah. yeah there's, not, there are, there's not a lot of hooks there. <laughs> I mean, I picture it in my mind. Billy West, the voice actor, not the silent film actor, but the voice actor Billy West does an amazing Larry. You should look that up. Is he one of those old timers that like also visited Larry at the old folks home? They all have those stories. Bob Saget famously visited Larry. There are photos of him. Or there's also that guy, um, Tom Bergeron, I think is his mm. name. The America's Funniest Home Videos guy. Okay, two hosts of America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> I mean, they know what's funny. Visited like th there's a great interview you can listen to of that guy when he was like 17 doing a phone interview with Mo and that's heaven and just listening to Mo expound on comedy <laughs> this is why I want to introduce this topic of the three shooters are funny because we're about to go watch we're gonna <laughs> arguably anti-comedy we're stooges. gonna see them not be funny <laughs> I'm excited though like very slow slapstick that doesn't really work gentle taps to Curly Joe <laughs> because he doesn't want to be hurt by the stooges I would have just loved to have been one of those boomers who was watching the Stooges on TV every day. The Stooges have come to your town, okay? They're performing at the local state fair. Well, you told me a story that didn't one of your parents go see them when they came to Toronto? Well, my dad, I believe, did see the Stooges when they performed the Canadian National Exhibition. Which is like the Beatles. <laughs> well, like 10,000 people saw them. It was one of the biggest, it, might, it was more than that. It might have been like 40,000, honestly. Like it was, it was, they broke an attendance record at the CNE. And didn't your dad say like, huh? Curly looks not so healthy anymore. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, could you imagine just going, you're a kid and you don't know, like, when these shorts were made. They, You think they're being made right now. Mm. And then you go see the Stooges and it's like, did Curly have a stroke? Why, I mean, why is he funny? One, he did have a stroke. Yeah, and that's why <laughs> he's not there anymore. <laughs> then he died 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> years ago and they got his brother curly joe which is a stooge that got all the money was it joe dorita who got all the like stooges okay this is a bit of a tangled web but there was a lawsuit in the 90s because mo was the businessman of, mm. of the group and he was the one who really founded their production company that they had in the 50s and 60s and in the 90s there was a court case the heirs of i believe larry fine and joe dorita took the, the Mo Howard family, including his aged widow, who was in her 90s, took her to court and they were represented, by the way, by Bella Lugosi's son. <laughs> Bella Lugosi Jr. Who, after his father's death, took a great interest in, like, dead celebrity rights. Yeah, especially uh, his dad. Because he he was interested in making some money. Yeah. Let's, let's put it that way. Anyway, they made it so that I think I think the Howard family was getting maybe an unequal amount of shares because they were getting Curly's share as well, because mm. they were both Howards. Anyway, it was it was made a such... Wait, so was the argument that Curly Joe Dorita should get Curly's share because he took over for him? Oh, we might have to get Bella Lugosi Jr. here to 
clear this mm-hmm. up because it's been too long since I've read about this. But the end of it resulted in like the the Dorita family basically they now run the empire. That is bananas. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that's how it ended. The Dorita played the long game. 